Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Let's jump into week three of this series we're calling Create, looking at how we might partner with the creator of the universe in our souls and how he would restore and, and kind of light something up in us. And we'd, we see his creativity expressed in our craft and in our world that we're living in for the beauty of our world and for, um, and for the advancement of his kingdom and for his glory and his fame. That, that's what this series is all about. And uh, the 6.30 recording, like I record at 6.30 so we can send it to church at home at nine o'clock. We can email that out. And that, that was, it was a nightmare. Like, I don't know if I just wasn't awake fully yet. Or I think what I concluded was I just have too much stuff in one message here. So it was like, talk really fast or just, you know, go for it and cut some stuff out. So I decided to cut some stuff out not hopefully talk too fast. I also realized like my recap has just got to be shorter. So if you're just jumping in today, you haven't seen the other pieces of this or heard the other pieces of this message yet, I'd invite you to go back online and, and go listen to them. I don't have time to cover them really exhaustively this morning, nor should I, because I mean, then it'd be just like three messages all in one, you know, and who would want to do that? Especially for you who have come already the first couple of weeks, you're like, just get on with the next point. Come on. Um, this morning, really what I hope to do is put some, some flesh on and, and put some, some things like material on how we're going to live out this life, seeking uh, to, to, to exert our redemptive influence that's been given to us by God into the world we live in. So I hope that today what we can do is kind of put some, put some context in that and how that will look. Because if you were here in the first week, what we talked about was that creativity often gets reduced down to this thing that either we are or we aren't. Like I, I can draw a stick figure or I can draw a beautiful painting. Therefore, I, I am creative or I'm not creative. I, I'm, a, I'm a poet. I like to write things. I like to make things. I like to sculpt things. And so like I'm creative or like, you know, I'm just kind of in my spreadsheet. I just like, I just like interacting with people. Like I, I'm not creative. I, my brain does not think that way. And we reduce it down in this conversation, our head to something we either have or we don't have. But we looked at week one, God has given all of mankind this creation mandate to go into the world, to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the earth. And what that dominion looks like is to create and, and to make culture in different areas, to, to influence and to build and to make things. And the question really is not, are we creative or are we not? The question really is, what are you going to do with that giftedness that God's given to you? Because from the Christian's perspective, creativity is unique in that I think all people, most people really do like to build stuff. They like to make things. They like to innovate. There are some people for sure in the world who just want to watch the world burn, right? To quote the butler guy from Batman. I didn't think a Batman quote would make it this early again into this sermon. I thought I'd kind of drop that because nobody laughed first service either, but <laughs> whoops. Um, so there really are some people that are just out to, they're bent on destroying stuff. But most people, really, when you think about it, they're, they're good intending people trying to build things and, and create and make and express and make beautiful things. But, but it's the Christian's unique capacity to actually partner with the creator in the renewal of all things. That's what we get to do. That's our joy. That's our privilege as Christians to step into dark places of this world, to step into the brokenness, to step into the hurting and breathe the life of God, the hope of God, the redemption of God into the circumstances that we find ourselves in. 
That's our, that's our privilege. That's our call as a church. And, and we looked at last week why, why this feels so uncomfortable and why this can be so hard to do is because we're living here in 2020 America in a post-Christian culture. So the moment that we find ourselves sitting in is living in a world that doesn't reflect, represent, or honor the values that we see in the kingdom that we're trying to represent, being Christ. But instead, we, we've been reduced from a majority to a minority, so there's not as many of us as there used to be in this country. We've been kind of relabeled as, as maybe once these like, pillars and makers of culture involved in education and politics and these big business spheres, we've been kind of moved out to the fringe of culture as Christians. And so now we're, we're no longer seen as this desirable ethic or this desirable way of living, the way we view sexuality, the way we view, view gender, the way we view money. All those things aren't like the way the world's trying to point themselves towards, but instead they're, they're relabeling that as intolerant or bigoted or, or like we don't come across as loving always. And that's what makes this cultural moment that we're sitting in difficult. And that's why when the waiter, you know, if you're trying to pray for your meal before the waiter comes back, you're like, oh, in Jesus' name, amen. Here she comes. You know, sh- sh- like, that's why it feels tense. That's why when you see somebody that's hurting or sick in your workplace, your first response isn't just like, hey, can I pray for you? Because we don't assume that most people believe what we believe anymore. Like, and this tension usually drives us to this, like, uh, escapist mentality where we see that this, we have this big, bad culture in the world. And so we try and remove ourselves from it to preserve something that's good, our holiness. But in an attempt to do that, what we do is we retreat from culture and we lose all ability to influence it. So we go and we buy a, a hundred acres up in the mountains somewhere and we all just go up there, we dip out there and we're just like, we're just gonna pursue holiness and it's gonna be awesome. And, and in doing that, we lose our capacity to speak into the culture that we're critical of. The other pitfall would be this, like, this conformity where we just give in and we just kind of blend in and we, we uh, have a life that's marked and filled with compromise where we know what values we should be standing on. We know what we should be saying and doing, but it's just easier to blend in with culture rather than to confront it, rather than to speak the truth into what's happening in culture. We, we just take this like non, non-abrasive path where we just say, okay, yeah, I'll have another round. Okay, yeah, I'll move in with my girlfriend. That's what everybody else is doing. Yeah, yeah, okay, like I'll just do the, you know, the dog-eat-dog capitalist world where I just will lie, steat, and chill to get ahead. Like just a little, like we we convince ourselves with just little things to get ahead. And these are the two pitfalls we fall into. And we talked about last week that we, the really the road that we need to march on is this razor thin margin between those two areas that we are going to call a creative minority. That's not a term I made up. It was a term that was developed by Arnold Toynbee. If you remember, he studied civilizations. He said that civilizations' lifespans can be prolonged with the presence of a creative minority. Uh, a small group of people who seek the welfare uh, of the city. That's how Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said it in his Erasmus discourse in 2013. I don't even know what most of those words mean, but it's just like you quote it and you just sound smarter. You know what I mean? So he brought that phrase back into circulation by saying, no, look, the Jewish people, when they were living a life of exile in Babylon, defeated out of Jerusalem, sent there against their will, This is what they were called to be, was someone, Jeremiah 29 says, to seek the welfare of the city. Pray for it. Pray for the city. Pray on its behalf. And in its welfare, you will find your welfare. He said that is the definition, the epitome of a creative minority. This this group of people who's ruggedly committed, right? We talked about last week, we ended on this idea that there has to be this, uh, this in the community, there has to be this commitment to Christ, 
to be a Christian creative minority, to be these Christian creatives, the first thing that we got to do before we set out on this journey is we have to be committed to pursuing wholeheartedly after Jesus. Like in sometimes in the church, we can get confused with like, ah, I show up on Sunday, so am I committed to Jesus? No, it's like, are you practicing what everything that his life stood for? Are you trying to implement that into your life? Are you, are you, like a lot of times we want the benefits of Jesus without the lordship of Jesus. Are you submitted to him? Are you pursuing after him? Are you committed to him wholeheartedly and to his people? And so that, that brings us to this week now where we say, okay, so like as I'm committed walking down this margin between the, the pitfall of conformity and escapism, what am I going to do? How am I going to live out my life? And as I was praying this week, I, I said, man, you know what, before we even get into it, we got we to gotta pray. We got to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us and compel us this morning. We got to ask that the Lord would show us places in our heart that are off, show us maybe some mistakes we've made, not in a way that drives us to guilt or to shame, but in a way that actually, that actually says, okay, wait, no, I'm not going to pursue that any further. I'm going I'm to follow after Jesus and what he would teach. And that in and of itself is just the, it's the definition of repentance. You know, it's not this like frothy, like repent, the kingdom is near. Like it's not this like crazy thing. It's just you're going this way. You're pursuing this life. And that's not the life that is going to lead to the abundant life that Jesus came and taught about. But if you would turn and face this way and chase after Jesus and what he's calling for you, then, then that is the invitation of repentance that only the Holy Spirit would bring. And the other thing that we need is we need compelled because this is not like a motivational TED talk right now. That's not what this is. Like this is not something where I'm going to try and use human wisdom to try and coerce you into a certain kind of behavior. But I'm actually praying that the Holy Spirit would compel us to be brokenhearted for the things that breaks God's heart in this world. And that we would see the things that are off and, and not aligned with his kingdom. And we'd step into those spaces rather than try and avoid them or rather than try and blend into them. So let's pray. Jesus, we invite you into this place right now. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come into each heart in this room. We welcome your conviction. We welcome your compelling work in our heart today, Jesus. Would you light a fire in us? That we, that we would seriously and passionately be, be stirred up about something that's off in this world and that we would see it and that we would see the redemptive work that you could do in it. Would we see the world for what it could be rather than be so pained by what it used to look like in the past? Would we have an optimistic view of what your world could look like with you reigning and ruling in someone's heart and in someone's life right now? Jesus, I ask that you would come and move in us, stir us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like part of the problem with living in a post-Christian cultural moment that we're in is we're all just so like uh, easily uh, made into something else. This is kind of what the apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, where he says, don't be conformed to like how this world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he has to say that to us because we're so like easily swayed or, or like brought off course. And it, maybe it used to be in America when we had a more, uh, a more Christianized culture that we lived in, where, where going to church was the norm on Sunday, where prayer was a part of school, that maybe you could argue that the natural drift in someone's life was sort of towards the things of God. You could maybe make that argument, but for sure now, the moment that we're sitting in now, like the natural drift is not towards Christ. And, and, and people give Christians a hard time for proselytizing all the time to try, 
all the time for trying to convince other people to believe what we believe, but the world does this. Like everything in the world is trying to proselytize you. It's like, have you seen, the, have you seen Tiger King, bro? Like you gotta check out Tiger King, you gotta watch it. Have you been to Vato's Tacos downtown? Their fried avocado taco will make you weep. And it is, I heard it is good. My wife had it the other night and she, I'm gonna get it next time I go. But like, we're constantly being proselytized. We're constantly being told to try this, to go do that, to have this, to watch this, see this series on Netflix. You gotta catch that movie. Like we're constantly being shaped and informed by culture. And, and it'd be one thing if we weren't just so gosh darn malleable. You know what I mean? Like I, nobody wants to out themselves. So how many of you know somebody who like, as soon as they hang out with that friend that they grew up with back in the day from their hometown, maybe. And like, as soon as they start talking with that person, they just start talking completely different, right? Like I'll out my mom, cause I didn't see her here this morning. And so she should be in church. I, I honestly wouldn't have outed her if she was sitting right here. But every time she hangs out with her brothers who are from Southeast Washington, and they're, you know, they're from this town of a thousand people in the Southeast corner of Washington state. And so they just like kind of live a little differently. And every time she gets with them or every time she gets with some of her friends from high school, like all of a sudden she just like starts using words like y'all and starts saying all these different things. And I'm just like, who are you? You don't talk like this. Like this isn't you, you know what I mean? But don't we do that? Don't, people do that, right? You don't do that, but other, other people you know do that. I, I was talking to a new gal at the church and uh, I, don't, I don't even see her here this morning, but she's moved, just moved up here from Florida and she's getting plugged in and connected. And so I'm having this conversation with her last week and she has this like sweet Southern draw in her, in her accent, you know? And all of a sudden, like three sentences in this conversation, I start talking like I have this like Southern accent. I had to, I literally had to stop myself in the conversation. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't talk like that. Like, this isn't, this isn't me, you know? And it's just weird though. Like we just, we blend in. We just, we start doing things. We pick up things. We don't even know it. And so what, uh, I quoted John Tyson last week because he wrote a book on becoming a creative minority. And some of this stuff is from him. You should check out his book. You can pick it up on Amazon for like five bucks, I think. And it's like a 60 page book. So it's worth the read. But he says, it's, it's not just enough to have this commitment to Jesus. There's other things that we have to do. We have to have, and what we're gonna look at today, uh, counterformational practices. As a creative minority, we have to embrace some counterformational practices and we also have to, we have to have a distinct moral ethic that we're going to walk in. So we have to have this, these counterformational practices, these things that build us up in a certain way so that we're strong against the culture that's constantly trying to get into us. But we also have to have a distinct moral ethic that we're going to walk in. And as you do those two things, what we're ultimately going to point to is that's going to cause you to look differently in the world that we're walking in. And, and hopefully what you do as you rise in what we're going to call influence because people start taking note of how you look different, how your family's different, how you work different. And, and when, you, when you're there, hopefully what you can do is you can exert that influence for redemptive opportunities. So you would speak the love of Jesus, speak the truth of the gospel into circumstances so that we would then give glory to our God who is in heaven. That, that's as we put his name in the public sphere, that is us giving glory to him. And so the first, we gotta have, we gotta have some counter-formational practices. Again, culture is constantly trying to form us and so we have to have counter-formational practices. And so there, I have six here, there's probably more. And what I'll say before we go through this list is it's quite simple. It's probably stuff you've heard before. And, and yet it's a good reminder that these are things that we need to implement in our lives, not just so that we can uh, be more loved by God, right? The, the worst thing that you can conclude from me reading this list is if I do these, then, then God will be more pleased with me. 
We don't do these for God's love and affection. We do these from God's love and affection. We're going to do these things because he loves us. Because as Jesus says in in the book of John, abide in me. Like the closer that I can stay with Jesus, the more that I'm going to experience the love that he's already freely offering to me. So I don't do these things to earn more of his love. I just, I do these things to, to keep myself closer in touch with them so that he would grow me and develop me, right? So the first one is prayer. Prayer, obviously like prayer is our ability to communicate with God. It is our way to talk, like, the, like consistently throughout scripture, God's ear is inclined towards his people. He's listening to us. The, the maker and creator of the universe is saying, hey, if you're one of my followers, I'm listening. And yet we still find a way to not make time to talk to him. And even when we do talk to him, we think that it's a one-way conversation. We just go, well, God, this is, you know, I really need this new minivan. I, you know, all these kids, it's cool. And it's, we just like rattle off these requests. And so in your prayer life, are you making any time to listen to his voice as well? Like I would just encourage you, it's not a one-way conversation. It's an open dialogue. Sit down, make time for prayer where you can actually listen to the things that he's saying. The second one is, is similar to it. It's spending time in the word. Like you, you got to be familiar enough with truth. So when there's all kinds of truth, as in not true things being sold, but things like my truth, things like your truth, people defining how things really are, things, people defining how things ought to be. Hopefully you have a good enough relationship with the truth that you know how to take a stand against those things. Not that you're able to just quote every single chapter and verse in your mind, but that you actually know what this book says. Like you can thematically pick up what happens from from Genesis to Revelation. Just spend some time. Do you spend time studying it? And I think both of these, prayer and and scripture, we find ways to say, like, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time. Like if you knew my schedule, you know, I'm a pretty busy person, pretty important, obviously. And if you just, like I, I dare some of you just after church today, not during church, but after church sometime, Google the, the stats on how, how much screen time like American adults get in a day. And you'll find yourself a whole bunch of time to read the Bible and spend time in prayer. Like, I, I mean this in the most loving way, but how many of you have so much time to know every line of every series on Netflix? You have, every, you have moments to... to know every conspiracy theory that's out there about the pandemic, about, about the president, about, you know, the, all the political campaigns that are going, you know, you know, all these stories, but you don't know the story of scripture. Well, that's going to make it really tough for us to have this counterformational habit. If we're going to be formed by the word, we have to know the word. And, and if you just would cut out Facebook, cut out Fox news, cut out CNN, whatever your flavor is, I don't really care. If you would just turn that off for a little bit, I think you'd be shocked to know how much time we have for spending time with Jesus and his voice. It's just, it's gonna be one of the, I think, shocking things to us at the end of time when we're able to realize, like, I had how much time that I could have spent with him and I didn't. I'm putting myself in this as well. I think all of us as Christians, we go, I don't, I don't prioritize this enough. I could spend so much time. And I would just say, man, pray what you got. Pray what you got. That was one of the best things of advice I ever heard from a pastor one time was just pray what you got. Like we get so convinced we have to pray these eloquent prayers with all this beautiful language because we hear people pray that way. And we're like, oh my gosh, if I could just pray like them, then maybe I would pray out loud. And it's like, no, you just just pray. You know how many prayers I've started with just like, Lord, I don't know what to do. Come Holy Spirit. Would you show me something right now? Just pray what you got. Just be available. Speak to him. Be open. Ask him to speak to you and he'll speak. 
Get in the Word. Like, you don't have to, like, memorize a whole book of the Bible. Just read until something convicts you. Like, just read until something lands and you're just like, whoa, okay, I'm just going to work on that today. You don't have to read the whole thing every day. You know what I mean? Like we get convinced that like only the, I'm only going to read the Bible if I can complete the whole thing in a year. And as soon as you get off your Bible plan, you stop reading for the year. Come on, like we just spend some time in the book and let it get in you. Let it shape you. Let it form you. We have to have these counterformational practices. The third one, so prayer, the word, we have to Sabbath. We have to rest. The, the Sabbath is not so much a day off as it is a declarative worshipful, worship-filled statement that God is God and I am not. Like I'm gonna take a day and I'm gonna produce nothing knowing that the creator of the universe can do more in my six days of production than I can do with a full seven. And so as I Sabbath, it's not this thing that I have to do, it's this thing I get to do. So I get to be more in touch with the fact that Jesus has come, he has provided my ability to have this shalom, have this peace, this Sabbath rest, so that I can just sit with him. And, and, and often what that means for the majority of people is you're gonna spend time on the Sabbath committed to gathering with God's people. It's been the church's tradition for thousands of years. And a pandemic is not gonna change that. Like, yes, maybe for a season, we're gonna go back into our homes and we're gonna play things a little different. But like the, the new normal is not us ex, like engaging in church virtually. It's just not. Maybe it will be for some churches. It's not gonna be here. Because as the church, we are called to be the called out ones who gather and, and on their Sabbath, on this day of rest, we're gonna commit it to the worship and the encountering of God's presence, the opening and the teaching of his word and the community that we experience with his people. That's not gonna change. Like we need to be with each other. We aren't gonna neglect the habit of gathering as is the habit of some is how Hebrews writes it. So, so we gather, we have the Sabbath, we gather, we rest, not in this way that says, sweet, I'll get to watch the Broncos play football today, but in this way that says, I'm gonna give this day in surrenderful, filled worship to the Lord saying, he's God, he's got it. Whatever that meeting is coming up on Monday, whatever that, that thing is that I gotta do, those six things I gotta do for my kids homeschool this week, I'm gonna surrender today to the Lord. I'm gonna give it to him because he's more fruitful in my time than I am with all of my time. The next one, so prayer, word, Sabbath, generosity. We have to be marked, we have to be formed by a habit of generosity. And this starts uh, at, with the tithe. This starts with the tithe, but I think it ultimately ends in much more than that. Um, and you might be saying right now, like, okay, pastor, like, whoa, why are you talking about, like, how does the way I use my money form me spiritually into the way that the kingdom, see, like, the way I'm used in the kingdom of God? I would say like Jesus speaked more on money than on any, almost any other topic. I think he spoke more on the kingdom than he spoke on money, but money was like the second thing that he spoke on the most. I think it's like one in four of his parables were about money in some way. Like there's, there's so, that, that number might be a little high, but it's something that shockingly high where you're like, holy smokes, he talked about money all the time. And what's hard to talk about money in the culture that we're living in, like culture is constantly trying to teach you how to use your money, is it not? Like, and we're like, oh my gosh, yeah, it's, I do need that new car. Wow. You know, like I really, you know, I need it. We have this consumer driven economy that is like putting you as the consumer at front and center, which feels really good because like all these things are being made and innovated for you. And I can't wait for the iPhone 12 to come out just to see what it's going to be about. But like the consumerism is not the way of the kingdom. Like God did not entrust you with all of your dollars so that you could just see how much stuff you could pile up in this lifetime. And the hard thing about teaching the tithe in church is you're not actually teaching people like in the American church, you're not asking people to go from 100% of their income to 90% of their income. 
you're actually most of the time asking people to go from 110, 120% of their income down to 90% of their income. Because we're so conditioned to have that car payment, have that credit card bill, have, the, have these things. Like, and I'm not saying they're all bad, so please don't let this heap shame or guilt anywhere in your life. But, but in some ways, we are taught in our culture that it's okay to live beyond your means. And the tithe, like very simply put, it's, it's 10% of your income committed to the place where you are being nourished and fed at a local church. And that money is then given to equip and resource you and to send the gospel out into not only your city, but into the nations. It's a quick definition of the top. Like that's, that's why it's important that you hear about the global glance. That's why it's important that you hear about where some of those dollars are going in the world to make a difference because it's not, it's not the church's money. Like this, the government does this all the time. It drives me crazy. Well, the government's going to give you a stimulus check. No, the government's going to give us some of our tax money back, right? Like, so that's the funny thing about there. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be all political. So moving on, like the church isn't mobilizing money. Like we are praying and seeking the Lord about how to steward the resources that our church has entrusted to us to mobilize into the kingdom. That's what that's about. But again, the the practice of tithing, if you practice that, like that's going to look weird to the world because not only are you not living beyond your means, but you're biblically looking at how resources should be managed and you're seeing, okay, wait, I'm not going to live in debt. I'm not going to live with this approach that I always got to have the new thing, the next thing, the most stuff, the prettiest stuff, the shiniest car, the biggest house. I'm not going to live in that way. And instead, I'm actually going to live, choose to live at 90% of my income because I give 10% to my local church. But then Jesus also has this way in the New Testament of ratcheting up like the laws of the Old Testament. So, so like when, when they're like, oh, like I've never, you know, don't commit murder. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And then Jesus goes, well, yeah, you know, you've heard it said that way, but even if, I'll, I'll tell you this, if you even looked at your brother in anger in your heart, then you've, you're guilty of committing murder. So Jesus has this way of like ratcheting up the Ten Commandments, all these rules in the Old Testament to be, be way more intense. And, and what he says to the rich young ruler is what? Sell everything and follow me. And so you're not just called to tithe, I would argue, as we are not just called to tithe as believers. I would argue that all of us are called to live with this posture of surrender that I'm going to be generous with my resources to anybody who I see that's in need. That at any moment, God could ask me to use my resources for something and I'm willing to surrender it to him. Tim Keller has this amazing quote. He says it this way, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body, and gave practically everybody their money. Isn't that beautiful? It was a mark of the early Christian church, this generosity. It was a practice that they had to be formed, contrary to how Rome worked, contrary to how America works, we need to be formed in a different way. The fifth one that we'll talk about is fasting. Fasting, fasting is this opportunity. If prayer is my way of being spiritually filled up by God, that I'm spiritually in tune and in touch and being filled with him. Fasting is my way of starving myself from the world and starving myself from my fleshly desires. And so every, every last Wednesday of the month, we have what we call as, um, what, last Wednesday? Wednesdays without, I'm like, no, what do we call them? A total brain space there, whatever. We have Wednesdays without where we just say, hey, for that Wednesday, that last Wednesday of the month, we're gonna go without um, something, probably food, hopefully food, at least you tr- hopefully try that sometime. Then we come together and we pray. And in that, again, we're not, we're not trying to prove how holy we are by showing the world how hungry we can get, but we're starving ourselves of cravings of my flesh 
things that will only temporarily satisfy me so that I can say yes to something that's eternal. That's what fasting is. And I would just invite you to try it sometime. Maybe you try Wednesdays without. Maybe, maybe you seek the Lord and he shows you that you need to try a Daniel fast, a 21-day Daniel fast, a three-day liquid-only fast. Like, there's so many. You can look at them online. I would just encourage you. Fasting is not this way to prove how holy you are. It's a way that you can recognize that I want to be more like Christ. And so I'm going to try my best to detach myself from these cravings of the world. So we fast. It's a counterformational practice. The last one is community. Last week, we used this quote from John Tyson that uh, Christian community needs to be this kind of stubbornly loyal group that's all weaved together. And I just love that language. Like we as Christians have to be stubbornly loyal to one another. And so like, yes, um, people are going to offend me. Like we're, I'm not in any way, like on any Sunday, asking us all to agree on everything. Like that would be insane, wouldn't it? Uh, we can't all agree on everything, but what we have to do is we have to be willing to say, listen, I, I maybe don't agree with you. I maybe don't understand. I probably don't land where you land on that idea. Um, but I, I'm, listen, we have so much more in common because of what Christ has accomplished for both of us for this little petty thing to separate us. And so we're committed in community. Hopefully you're jumping in a group this semester. If you're a young adult, come to the young adult thing. If you're 40-somethings, get inside that 40-somethings group. If you just want to be in a family group, there's family groups. There's, there's all sorts of prayer groups. It's all online. Check it out. Get into something. The women's ministry is going to kick off a study through the book of Daniel. And I think that would be awesome for any of the women in this church to participate in. So we, we have these things. And again, they, they form us so that we can go out and we can weather the barrage of attack that culture is putting into us. And so we step into culture being hopefully built up by these, by these countercultural practices, but it's not enough just to have the practices because at the end of the day, like we could all go off, live on a hundred acre cabin, like in different cabins up in the woods, and we could put all these practices in place, but our call isn't to just have these really holy practices. It's to take those things, to let them form us, but then to carry them out into culture. And when we go out into culture, it's important that we walk with a distinct moral ethic. And I, I thought and prayed and wrestled around how to, how to open this up for us this morning. Because um, here's the reality. Like, Jeremiah says that, that uh, the word of the Lord has been written on our hearts. It doesn't mean that if like a cardiologist opened you up and looked at your heart, it's like, oh my gosh, look at that. Yeah, Ten Commandments right there. What it means is that, like, you know. You know what you should and shouldn't be doing. We know what's morally right and wrong, especially on the big ticket stuff. You know, you shouldn't be looking at things that you're maybe looking at. You know, you should be um, being more generous, more open with people than you are. You know, you shouldn't be lying. You know, you shouldn't be stealing. <laughs> what am I? <laughs> Cheating, stealing. Like, you know, you know what's, you, we have this grid for morality. What sin does is sin will deaden that grid. So sin will, like, if you are caught, if you're caught up in this habitual sin, what it'll do, it'll deaden this effect of being able to sense what is right and wrong. So you need, to, you need to turn away from that. You need to repent. You need to have some people around you who maybe can talk you through how to do that. But, but at the end of the day, I don't think we need really a lot of help knowing what like the rules are for what to do and what not to do. Those are usually pretty plain to us. But I think what we can do is we can look at how Jesus asked us to be interacting with people in his Sermon on the Mount. So open on up to Matthew chapter five with me. And in Matthew chapter 5, he's going to start on the Sermon on the Mount, and it starts with what are called the Beatitudes. And I think this offers some unique perspective about how we can engage with culture in a redemptively influencing way as we're going about our life. Starting in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they, for so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I'm going to just kind of go through this quickly here. And if you're like, Austin, you're going through it too fast. Like I just told you to spend more time in scripture this week. So just write down Matthew 5 and just read it again on your own. Like get in that, get in the book of Daniel. Look at how he lived his life in a way that was different. Um, but let's just, let's just walk through these here. Because when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's talking about there is blessed are the humble. Blessed are the ones who think low enough of themselves to know that they are in desperate need of a savior. Like, is this, is this how we interact with the world? Do you go out in a way that says, you know what? No, I'm going to humbly approach other people and I'm just going to, I'm going to engage with them in this way that seeks, that puts on this posture of humility and just goes, okay, I, I want to hear you out. I want to hear what you think. I want to, I want to listen to you from this stance of like, I maybe don't understand it all. I maybe don't have it all figured out, but I, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to be humble enough to listen because I know that it's in my humility that God is blessing me and is near to me. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Psalm 58, you have kept count of my tossing. You put my tears in a bottle. God is frequently, one of the refrains of scripture is that God is, God is like his ear is so inclined to those who are hurting, to those who have been oppressed, to those who have been victims of injustices. Like God is listening when people are mourning. Are we listening when people are mourning? Like this was kind of convicting for me to think through these first two, like these people who like are, are mourning and who are like poor in spirit or who are just like, they're the emotionally bankrupt kind of people. Things are always going wrong in their life and everything's always on fire. And when they come walking up to you, you just kind of like, like it's going to be a long conversation. You know what I mean? You have those people in my life? I see how it is. You're going to leave me up here to dry. Okay. So y'all so holy, um, but it's convicting, right? Say, blessed are those who mourn. Are we, are we, are we paying attention? Are we, are we stepping into those spaces where people are so hurting and so um, like broken? Are we moving towards them or are we moving away from them? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, meekness is so rare in our culture these days where it's great power that's under great control. It's not weakness. It's, it's actually having power, but having it under control. And that's so rare that in the world we're living in today. Like if people have power in the world we're living in today, you know it. They're flexing, they're doing different things. We're just like, pay attention to me, like making different, whatever. They're, they're, they're using their authority often. They're not, they're not taking this stance of meekness, but, but, you know, as Christians, like we're sitting on this book, which is like the ultimate source of power and of truth. And do we demonstrate meekness when we're interacting with people in the Facebook comment section where, where we're just like, do we just slap them with truth? Like, do we just, are we using this thing with just absolute power? Or we just go like, hey, listen, I, I'd love to engage relationally with this and have a conversation. Because I think I see some things that are maybe just different than what I think about. 
And so can we, can we talk? Can we, can we approach this not with this just overt power as Christians going like, well, the Bible says, but rather can we enter into conversation lovingly and eventually get to what the Bible says? We don't do that devoid from relationship where we actually get to know people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. I was thinking about this one, like do you ever uh, interact with those people where you're just like, man, like something broke you along the way. Like something happened. And, and oftentimes I'm, I'm irritated with those people because they maybe don't think the way that I think or they're maybe loud about different things that I don't want them to be loud about. And so they're annoying sometimes. But I got to stop for a second and ask myself, do, when I'm looking at the people that I work with, when I'm looking, not me, because I work at a church, right? So we're all like set. But you, when you, when, you, <laughs> when you look at people that you're working with, you look at your coworkers, look at the people in your school, do you, do you look at them with this like, I wonder, I wonder if like, can I seek out the unrighteous thing that happened to you? Can I seek out the injustice that's part of your story? And can I speak to that wound rather than just getting irritated so quick? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I wrote down, um, I think it reveals a gaping hole in our understanding of mercy when we're unable to extend mercy to others. Because grace and mercy, right? They're two sides of the same coin. Grace is receiving something you do not deserve. Mercy is extending something that the other person doesn't deserve. So, So mercy, like if we're not willing to be merciful with the people we disagree with, who don't vote like us, who don't think like us, if we're not going to extend mercy towards them, I think really it, it reveals a pretty ugly thing in the mirror that we maybe don't understand the mercy that's first been extended to you from Jesus. He's been merciful. He did not give you what you deserved. He instead offered you grace. He gave you something you totally didn't deserve. So blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. I, I hope we'd all, as, as we step into situations, are, are we, are we are, am I pure in heart in this? Are my motives pure? Like, you know, going back to week one, am I using this all just to kind of build my own Tower of Babel? Am I using this all, like people are recognizing the good things that God is doing in my life and am I using that all to build up my own kingdom? Or am I pure in heart going, listen, it's just Jesus that's done some amazing things in me. Blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called sons of God. This tells me it's not just enough to be peaceful at times, to to not participate, to stand back and watch, but sometimes we're called to step into broken situations and make peace in places where there is no peace. That we say, listen, I know you don't agree and I know you don't agree, but I, I wanna see if there's a way that we can achieve peace in this situation. Like God is the person of peace. He's hopefully filled up your heart. Are you taking that to go make peace in the world that you're living in? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you. It it is a new thought to Christendom that we like, we shouldn't be persecuted. And it's a new line of theology that would say, you know what, if you would just have more faith and if you would just like, if you just press in a little harder then then this wouldn't be happening to you. Like frequently in the New Testament, you're going to see people being persecuted and way worse stuff than what we're dealing with right now. Stoned, stoned to death, crucified, upside down, killed, fed to lions. Like, Jesus says, woe to you when everyone thinks well of you. So, like, by no means do I think we're going to step out of this church today and everyone's just going to be like, man, you're so awesome. What is it about you? Like, at some point, people are going to revile you. They're going to say bad things about you, even when they don't have a leg to stand on. But are we willing to, because we've been formed by these countercultural practices, 
And while we walk with this distinct moral ethic, are we willing to hold the line and represent the kingdom that we're called to represent? Because that's what's going to help us rise in influence. And as we rise in influence, this is uh, Jesus points right to this going into verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If salt is no longer salty, it's no longer salt. You know what I mean? Perfect. So it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. This is the call of the church, and this takes some redefining because sometimes I think what we think of church is, is like, like right now it's this kind of exciting season to be coming here because there's new people coming into our church, and we're like, oh my gosh, you're new, you're new. And it used to be like if there was a new person, like six of us would all talk to that one person. Now we're kind of like, okay, how do we talk to the new people who are here? But the pitfall in this will be we see our success as a church, how many areas of culture we're able to pull into the church and make this gathering feel really good. And we go, oh my gosh, there's these business leaders here. There's these people from education that are here. There's these people from politics that are here. There's these awesome families that are here. And we'll go, man, this feels really good. But success for us as a church has to be not how many people are gathered in here on a Sunday morning, but what the gathered people here on Sunday morning then turn out and go and do in the different areas of culture that they are placed in strategically all around this city. And so hopefully what you're being formed here, hopefully you're diving in, pressing in and getting shaped, not so that we can all come out and hang out here all the time, so that we can step into culture and like N.T. Wright said, be a 45 degree angle that, ref- that reflects perfectly God out into the world. That is our call as Christians. Why don't you stand? And I'm gonna read this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It's not just this natural drift in the human race to just progress contrary to maybe some popular thought, like that's just not where we're all naturally moving. He says, progress comes through the tireless efforts of men and women, I'll add, willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the force of social stagnation. So if not us, who? If we're not gonna be formed to look like Jesus, then who's gonna go represent him out in the world? Like, if we don't go, who's going to go? Like, it'll just be social stagnation. There won't be progress. But as we come and as we're formed, as we carry this worldview out into culture with us, we we take it with us and, and we must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do what's right. That's our, that's our charge. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray just as I did at the beginning, that where there's conviction, it wouldn't lead to guilt, it wouldn't lead to shame, it would lead to a a lifestyle that's closer to you. That we would turn and walk away from things that aren't leading to life, they're leading to death, and we would face and move towards you and your path for us. I pray that we would spend time in the Sermon on the Mount this week as a church family. I pray that we'd spend time looking at Daniel and his life, and we'd read over his book and see what it was that made his life different. And God, I pray that you would actually compel us now. Holy Spirit, even now as we're sitting in this room, I pray that we'd be thinking about our Monday morning. We'd be thinking about what's gonna happen on Tuesday, the people we're gonna be sitting next to, 
the conversations we're going to be having. Would you be forming us right now, not to conform, not to escape, but to march out, bringing your life into every space we find ourselves in. Jesus, we love you and we need you in all of this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.